Hi, I'm Arlen Walker, and I'm live from Pelham's Wasteland, and today I have more about art and literature and all of that sort of stuff. Specifically, I've got a call in from Dave Aldridge, who um, I put in his call in about Star Trek and Star Wars in the last episode, and he's really cool. Check out Deep Percentile. Um, but yeah, he's he's got me thinking about high art and low art and engaging with art and what I think about the pulps and all of that sort of stuff. So I'm going to talk about it after you hear Dave. Hey, Arlen. I wanted to say thanks. Really enjoyed your Sword and Sorcery episode. Um, as usual, I really enjoyed the, the combination of broad scope, scholarship, um, thoughtfulness. One of the things that struck me as I'm listening is the sort of tension maybe or the ambivalence going on there. On the one hand, you're telling us about our, which I entirely agree with, our responsibility given the the general accessibility in the present time of all of the greatest and best things that have been thought and said and, and made. Our responsibility to get out there and read them, interpret them, experience them. And on the other hand, you're praising that, I was going to say pinnacle. Um, I think I mean pinnacle. Maybe there should be a depth. I think I mean pinnacle, that pinnacle of, of low culture, of course, the pulp writer. Sorry, carrying on. Yeah, so I really enjoy breaking down that high culture, low culture distinction. Uh, classically educated, got a background in the classics, but, you know, role player, I enjoy celebrating original series, Star Trek, comic books, pulp, pulp fantasy. And I, yeah, I suppose my, my feelings on this are conflicted. I think hard-won thoughts are important. I think we should have to work at culture. Um, but on the other hand, I want to resist attempts to demarcate what constitutes, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of high culture. Yeah, maybe I'm not making myself clear, but on the one hand, I want to I want to resist um, attempts by the elites, obviously, to set the boundaries of, of appropriate cultural taste. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to I don't want to accept those bloggers when they say, oh, don't listen to the liberals just because they've read loads of books. <laughs> you know what I mean, I think I think what's important here is that we can have hard won thoughts about anything. You know, we can have hard one. There are hard one interpretations there to be made of Robert E. Howard, of uh, original series Star Trek, if you want. Um, and I think your uh, your recent podcast was a good demonstration of that. So thanks very much, Arlen. So um, I have a lot of things that I think about the sort of stuff that Dave Aldridge raised. Um, definitely, there is a sort of of tension between the the high and low culture elements but i so i i specifically didn't use the term high culture to talk about the best art because i as as you are surely well aware both dave and listener um there are a lot of factors that go into determining what is high or low culture and and not all of it is based on 
just a sort of raw examination of the quality of the work, um, if it's possible to even examine a work based on quality without anything else. Um, but obviously things like um, political and social and moral concerns are introduced into the distinctions between high and low culture and um, and you know race and gender play a role in what gets counted where and um, the the social class of the both the producers and the intended audience and their um, political positions and the political positions of people around them and the way that their art gets interpreted. And anyway, um, all of that is to say that I am not, um, not, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater and get rid of quality alongside getting rid of high and low culture. And I don't want to get rid of the concepts of high and low culture at all. I just think we, uh, you know, as with most everything, worth um, being skeptically thoughtful about those things, examining our own um, prejudices and concerns and thoughts in a, a, a thoughtful and meaningful way, um, just because that's that's a generally good thing to do. And then there's another element of one of the things that I really like in a lot of different forms of media is um, basically media or art that um, punches above its weight, for lack of a better term, something that by rights should be trash or is mostly trash, but that has some sort of sort of a spark, a glimmer of something really special in it. Um, so for example, one of my favorite movies is um, The Raid Redemption. And I believe that you have talked about this movie on the podcast, Dave, so you probably know about it. Um, if it was somebody else's podcast, uh, I apologize. Um, but if you don't know, viewer, The Raid is this um, movie about a sort of SWAT team in Jakarta that take on an apartment complex owned by a, a gangster. Um, and it is one of the best action movies ever made. It's phenomenal. It's it's just so good. And it is it is gut-wrenching, pulse-pounding, non-stop action, except that it is not just non-stop action because there's a real artistry at play in many of the the scenes and that the, there's a couple layers to that i mean obviously with um it's there's a lot of martial arts fighting and so the, the choreography and the movement of the camera and the you know the sound design and all that sort of stuff is really impressive but even in some of the slower parts there's a a real artistry to the way that a number of the scenes are shot. And there's great, um, there's one great, well, there's a couple of, of great images that I remember from that movie that um, are, are really, you know, inspired moments and, and, and really just, you know, the raid is not, 
and is not likely to ever be considered a piece of high art um, unless you're one of those people who thinks that basically any movie that's not in English um, must be high art, um, which I suppose there are. There was one I remember with renting The Raid 2 on Redbox. Somebody said, I don't want to have to read a movie. And I thought, that uh, person should have done more research before they rented the movie. Um, but anyway, all of that aside, um, there is real, real artistry and real beauty and 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 real um, talent and craftsmanship that went into that movie. And there are those moments where it really shines, not just as a great action movie, but as a a great film in general. Um, which is not to say that on the whole, you know, it's. Uh, there are some other, well, there's some other examples I could use. Um, another one, Alexander Nevsky. Um, it's a, a film from 19, like 37 or 38 that is basically Soviet propaganda. Um, and it's magnificent. Oh, the, the stirring speeches and this kind of grand historical epic and and the battle at towards the end is is magnificent because it's done with all these extras and they're you know moving around in formations back and forth across the the iced over lake and it's it's a really awesome movie um i don't know if it would be considered high art or not because it's uh it is absolutely propaganda but it's it's definitely also art too i mean it's it's sergey eisenstein who is a, a phenomenal director um i don't know nevsky nevsky is another of those movies that i like and part of the reason that i like it is because it puts forward this kind of interesting conundrum about propaganda and art and um the, the role of media and all these things and how we should think about um, what surrounds a piece of art versus what is inherent to the piece of art. Um, it, it's, a, it's a fascinating movie. Um, great fun. Super, super worth checking out. The Raid and Alexander Nevsky both. Um but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here and kind of recollect my thoughts and then get into what is probably going to be a long section that is more about um, specific philosophy than it is about um, this sort of general movies thing. So, yeah, I'm pausing here. Be back in a second. So I thought I was going to sit and talk philosophy for a little while. Um, turned out I I did not have the mental energy to do that at the time and in some ways still don't right now. Um, just feeling kind of worn out. Um, so what I will tell you is that if you have not read um, Immanuel Kant's Critique of Judgment, um, you should look up somewhere on Wikipedia or something because it's really dense. Um, but it, it's worth kind of thinking about some of the ideas and, and actually I am going to talk about it now because I got started. And anyway, um, 
I was a junior in college when I was first introduced to the critique of judgment. And what the critique of judgment is about is um, a couple of different things. But one of there, there are sort of two core ones. And one of them is about the nature of art and beauty in particular. And then the other one is about um, the justification for logic, because there's this sort of logical problem that does not have a logical solution, essentially, this idea of how for for um, Immanuel Kant, he, uh, I keep saying Kant, Kant differently each time, that's going to get annoying. Um, for for Mr. K, the big philosopher, um, how do you justify logic? Because you can't, it would be paradoxical to use logic to justify itself, right? There's, that would be deeply flawed and, and, and ultimately wrong. You couldn't, couldn't have a, that would be paradoxical. So the solution to this for Mr. K is um, coming up with this theory of the nature of beauty. And in his theory, beauty is what is called the universal subjective, meaning that it requires a subject to witness beauty, um, but it is also universal in that all subjects who share these certain characteristics can just as equally witness beauty. And for um, the big philosopher, the big immaterialist, um, this is how logical existence is justified. The idea that being recognizing beauty and experiencing beauty is the basis for rational existence. Um, and I think that is fascinating and wonderful. And it's almost, it's almost so interesting and cool that who even cares if it's right or not, that that's just such a great piece of philosophy, this idea. Um, and what it means is that obviously kind of what you should do in order to be a, a living like a rational individual and all that sort of stuff is experience beauty and recognize it and analyze it and think about it and all of those good things. Um, to get back to Dave Aldridge's thing, um, I do not think that high and low culture corresponds to the beautiful. Um, I think that there is low culture stuff. There's, there's essentially art that we would classify as low culture that is beautiful. And there's art that we would classify as high culture that is not as beautiful as some other things. Um, and there are a couple of reasons for this, partly because um, I think one of the things I found out um, taking a lot of literature classes and reading a lot of literature and all of that sort of stuff is that there's um, just an immense amount of kind of things that have been lost or overlooked or 
haven't really um, been treated in the way that they deserve on the basis of their quality, I think. Um, and there are a number of different reasons for that, but some of it is just sort of what, I mean, part of, part of that goes back to, so a lot of my background is in, um, the, the classical world. And so I am very well aware of just how much poetry and prose and other art in particular, but, but poetry and prose in particular is sort of my focus that we have lost from the Greeks and the Romans. And that's not even mentioning the stuff that we lost that perhaps the Carthaginians produced or anything like that, um, that we have pretty much none of. And so it's sort of a, I mean, in some ways, some of the things that we have, the reason that we have them is because they were uh, produced in many, many copies. But there's some things that we only have, like, you know, one copy of that are amazing. And, you know, really. And that holds true for medieval literature as well. And on and on, even into the present, it's not as much of a problem, but, you know, there's still things that have been lost in the present day just because nobody bothered to, to save them correctly that shouldn't have been lost. Um, and all of that is just to say that um, I don't really think that, I don't know, I think there's a lot to be learned from high and low culture, and it's, it's important to engage with the concepts of high and low culture, but I don't think that they are um, perfect by any means. And I think one of the one of the examples that I like to use is one of my favorite authors is John Cooper Powis. John Cooper Powis, who is an incredible author and could, um, I think, really, you would be hard pressed to name a, an author writing in English who is definitively better. I mean, you could have different opinions about who is better or who is not, but he's a really incredible author among the highest tier has none of the recognition that some of the other authors among that tier have. Um, and aside from that being really unfortunate, that to me kind of speaks to the limits of sort of, culture categorization, right? Joyce and Faulkner are both at the, the top and they're both, well, although they're kind of interesting too, because, you know, both Joyce and Faulkner have, have low culture elements in their deeply high culture categorized stuff. Um, anyway, uh, this episode has been kind of all over the place, but um, yeah. And I also think that, you know, going back to the idea of punching above its weight, um, there's something really fascinating about, it seems to me that many of the, the authors or artists or filmmakers or people who work on low culture stuff, very few of them are really, um, uninterested in, high culture, right? There aren't many filmmakers. There there are some, I think, but there aren't many who are just like, all I really want to do is make money and I don't want to do 
anything at all that speaks to somebody on a higher level. Most of the people who even who make what is basically just entertainment want to touch people in that way and want to um, have some of that high art experience to their stuff. And so it's interesting to go looking for that. Um, and to get back to the pulps, you know, Robert E. Howard was uh, formidably well-read. He was a, a serious um, kind of amateur scholar of a lot of these things. And it, I think it shows. I think it, it shows that he he knew a lot of stuff and had read a lot of stuff and had a lot of practice. And that's not to say that Robert E. Howard's, um, you know, Robert E. Howard's books are not the Iliad, but um, they can still be fun. And they have moments of real beauty and real art showing through all of the just entertainment stuff. And so I, that's another part of why I think we should be reading Robert E. Howard. Okay. Last bit for me for today, for this episode. Um, my final point is that I think there's a lot to be gained by approaching, um, art and literature with a, um, an inquisitive and skeptical and thoughtful position that is willing to analyze and engage in all that sort of stuff. And that, that doesn't seem like a particularly controversial statement. But what I mean is I think you actually are experiencing higher art. You're getting more out of what you're engaging with by engaging than necessarily by what it is you are engaging with. Um, and so I think somebody that reads for instance, somebody that reads the Iliad and all they get out of it is, man, that was, you know, like a fun action movie. Um, there was a lot of violent stuff that was really cool is not getting as much as someone who reads something like Robert E. Howard and can um, speak intelligently and carefully and meaningfully about um, what is going on in Robert E. Howard's stories and, and has a sort of, you know, background in literary theory to be able to analyze those stories and all of those sorts of things. Um, and that is just to say that I think that part of owing it to ourselves to engage with the best works is not just choosing to engage with the best works, but engaging with them in the best way. And that part of it is not just what we choose to read, but how we choose to think about what we read, that we need to, or owe it to ourselves to um, be deep and thoughtful thinkers about the sort of stuff that we read Um because that's how we get stuff out of it. It's not just based on engaging with great art, but also thinking about great art in great ways and that sort of thing too. Um, which to my mind sort of allows for more of a place for, for stuff that even the low culture stuff that we wouldn't ever necessarily say has um, as much beauty is as fine art as some of the high culture stuff, even the stuff that we might say, you know, there's a reason that this is in the low culture category. Um, there's still a place for it. And I think I, I take after one of my um, professors in particular who really loved um, 
really loved and I presume still loves, although I haven't talked to him in a while, um, talking about a lot of this uh, low culture, even just kind of entertainment stuff and um, using that as his examples for literary analysis, partly because everybody knew it, right? That he could sit and talk about Star Wars and how it relates to Freud and Lacan and all of that sort of stuff. And that that way, because everybody knew Star Wars, you didn't have to try to engage with something that um, was already out there. I don't know. It's, it's hard to explain. But anyway, that's the end of this episode for today. I've been Arlen Walker, and I've been live from Pelham's Wasteland. I will see you next time.